So kids, you've got a, a purple sheet with you today, right? It's white. Okay, well, you have a, your own sheet today. I don't know what color I made it. So. Okay. I thought it was purple, but I, I don't have the best thing. So two things you need to do today. All right, two things, at least two things. Um, you need to draw a picture on the back of the day of Pentecost. So what's going to happen is whatever, hap- whatever we read about in, in, in our text today, I want you to draw a picture because I think it will make for a good picture. Here's the next thing. How many of you like homework? All right, none of you. How about, how cool, oh, how about this? Wouldn't it be cool to be able to give your parents homework? How awesome would that be? All right, so today, you get to give your parents homework. All right, so you can write this down, or if you're good at remembering, here's, here's the homework. On your way home from church today, you need to quit. You're going to give your parents a test, a quiz, not just homework. This is a pop quiz. All right. They need to tell you what the day of Pentecost, you're going to ask them, what, is the, what does Pentecost mean? That's what you're going to ask them, and they, they have to answer you. If they don't answer you well, you can let me know, and I'll get a hold of them. All right. And I'll give them a big F minus. Not just an F, an F minus. And it will go on their permanent record. All right. So that's the homework today for you guys. Ask your parents on the way home, what is Pentecost? All right. And then you've got other things you need to do. So speaking of that, what comes to mind when I say the word, when I say the word Pentecost, what comes to your mind when you hear the word Pentecost? Pentecost, and there's probably a, a, a lot of different things, perhaps the idea of some sort of Jewish festival, um, which would be, of course, accurate, um, perhaps um, an idea of uh, the, the gift of tongues would probably come to, to mind to many people, or perhaps some of you, what comes to mind is uh, um, Christian denominations that actually, that, that, that would hold to um, Acts chapter 2 and the giving of the Spirit and the speaking in tongues as forming the very basis and the foundation of, uh, of their doctrine and their creeds. And so probably a lot of things come to mind. And I do not want to diminish or take away from the very spectacular things that occurred on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. What I'm about to say may come across as very Baptist. I don't want it to be that. But I think that it's unfortunate to associate the day of Pentecost, especially in Acts, with the miraculous gift of speaking in tongues. I am not taking away, I do not want to take away any of the miraculous. But I think there's a bigger story. I think there's a much bigger story. So let me give you my purpose. I set forth my purpose in describing what happens on the day of Pentecost because what I want to do is I want to set our text, chapters 2, verses 1 through 13, within the framework of the entirety of Scripture. 
That's one of the issues we come into when we study the Bible, regardless of how we study it, whether we study it topically or as we do going verse by or you know, kind of thought by thought through the text. What we do is we tend to isolate a text and we look at that text in a very narrow, very narrowly. But one of the things I do when I come to a passage of text, and I hope you'll have employed this when you start when you're reading the Bible as you're reading through the Bible. In, in a year, hopefully you're doing that or you're reading, the, you have a regular Bible reading plan. One of the things we want to do and one of the things I always ask myself is how does this passage of text fit into the entire story of the Bible? Because I'm going to put forth, and, I, and I'm not alone, the idea that the Bible is, is a single story. So when we look at a specific paragraph within a story, we need to understand how does that paragraph fit into the big picture. You would that's the way you would read any book, wouldn't you? When you read a book and you come to a chapter and you read a paragraph, you're understanding how that paragraph fits within the entire story of or the entire um, that entire book. And unlike human authors, God is the, the divine author of this, and so there are no wasted paragraphs. Sometimes I read a book, and I'm like, well, I think they're just rambling. There are no wasted paragraphs in the Bible. So when we read this text, one of the things we want to do is say, we want to, we're going to look at it very focused, we're going to look at it very narrowly, but let's not forget to make sure that we understand it within its in the, the entire story of Scripture. So, we need to understand that the Bible is a story of God's redemptive purposes. And so, we're going to see that God is continuing, continuing to unfold His redemptive plan. And I'm not just making this up. Because Peter, in Acts chapter 2, verse 16, a passage we'll get to next week, understood the events, the miraculous events of Pentecost within the entire redemptive plan of God. Because what does he say? He says, this is that that Joel spoke about. So Peter's saying, I am understanding all this really amazing thing, all these amazing things that are happening. I am understanding... These events, not as some isolated event, but part of God's entire redemptive plan. And he says, I see this. This is something that God has been doing. This is just the the unfolding of what God has promised to do. I think we would do well to make sure that we understand the events of the day of Pentecost as one part of God's redemptive purpose. I want to establish the events of Pentecost on solid biblical ground. You see, the work of God in Christ did not begin at his birth and conclude with his ascension. The work of Christ began, at least historically, in the garden. Genesis chapter 3, 15 the promise of a Messiah. That's the very first place we see um, 
Well, one of the very first places we see the work of God in redemption. I'm going to bring forth a Messiah. The rest of the Bible unfolds God bringing forth a Messiah. And then God working through his church to proclaim the good news of the Messiah. So the work of Christ began historically in the garden. But I want you to understand that the work of Christ that began historically in the garden continues today. It did not end with his ascension. God didn't say, okay, work's been done. Salvation has been, been done. The work of Christ, is, uh, uh, the work of salvation has been completed. I'm done. In fact, we see this in the very first verse of Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus, what? Began to do and teach. The book of Acts is the continuation of what Jesus began to do and teach. And the day of Pentecost plays a huge role in all that Jesus began to do and teach. So that's kind of my purpose, my uh, big theme here. I want to look at the events in, in some, at some level of detail without losing the, the grand narrative of where this of, of what this event has um, to do with God's redemptive plan. Did I explain it? Are, are we good on that? Yeah, I see some people not so sure. So let me give you a little preview of where I, I hope to go today. I want to I, I, I want to consider this passage as it is given in the text without excluding the overall biblical context. So there'll be three big, I don't know, this passage outlines itself real nicely. Three big points. The setting, the event, and the response. What is the setting that brought that, that's going to help us understand all of the events? Then we're going to talk about the event or the event itself. And then how do people respond to the event? All right. And um, so that's kind of where we're going to go. So let's look, let's go ahead and read our passage today and then um, look at it a little more closely. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. This is God's inerrant word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak, in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking, saying they are filled with new wine. So let's just consider the setting of what's going, of, of this event. First of all, it is on the day of Pentecost. 
Pentecost occurs 50 days after the Passover. So Penta is 50. Penta, just Greek for 50. And it occurred 50 days after the Passover. Sometimes in the Bible you'll see it called the Feast of Weeks, or you'll hear it called the Feast of First Fruits. Um, but it was a presentation to God of the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And you'll see that in Exodus chapter 34, verse 22. That's why um, it would be called the Feast of First Fruits, because it was the day that people um, in an agrarian culture would bring the first fruits of their crop, the first fruits of their, of, of, of their field to God in a festival. So it, this is a harvest festival. That's basically what it is. It's a harvest festival. And it's celebrating the first fruits of the harvest. It's celebrating the first of the harvest. Now, let me just insert this. If I say first, what does that imply? At least the second. In other words, something's following. So the first is not the totality, is it? The first is just the first. There's going to be something that follows. So when the, when the, the farmers and the people would bring their first fruits, this is the first part of the harvest. You might even say the best part of the harvest. I guess you could suggest that. But it's the first. But it is suggesting that there is still a harvest to come. It's not the entire harvest. It's just the first part of the harvest. So this is the feast of first fruits. It is where the people would bring the first part of their crop and they would dedicate this to the Lord. It was a time of thanksgiving. So it's a harvest festival. And so let me just get ahead of myself just a little bit. Being that it's a harvest festival, I do not think, I think it would be unwise to disconnect what happens in verses 1 through 13 to what happens in verse 41 because it's an entire picture. What happens in verse 41? Praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number... Wait, let me go back up. 41. Sorry. Those who received His word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Any light bulbs going off? Any connections here? First fruits, there's a harvest. We cannot disconnect what occurs here. This is a harvest. There is 3,000 new people. First of all, it's a revival. But 3,000 people are added to the church that day. First fruits. This is the first fruits of a much bigger heart. In other words, I'm going to not suggest, I am going to make the point that what happens on the day of Pentecost is all about missions. Because the first fruits are 3,000 souls. Pentecost happens, the Holy Spirit is poured out, people are filled with the Spirit, they speak in other languages. People hear them in their other languages and they say, what is this? Peter preaches the gospel and 3,000 souls are added to the church that day. Before Peter's sermon, there was 120 people who are part of the church. After his sermon, 3,000 people. This is first fruits. But what did I say? What 
what is the first, first there are first fruits, there are fruits that are going to follow. And the whole book of Acts is about that harvest, that missions. And I think that God's church is all about missions and the harvest that follows. So, I'm setting the context here that Pentecost is about first fruits. And now, God is like, I'm not so much focusing on your wheat harvest. What I'm focusing on is a harvest of souls. And everything I'm doing, what I do in these miraculous things is about bringing men and women to salvation. So I'm going to understand the events of Pentecost under the umbrella that this is a harvest festival and that God is going to bring in his harvest, the first fruits of his harvest at this point. I think that should be helpful. In other words, it's not haphazard that these events occur at Pentecost. God just didn't say, well, I need a good day. When's everybody going to be in Jerusalem? Well, they're already there for Passover. What's another good day? Oh, you know what? Pentecost would work. I don't... I know that this is not some haphazard event that God thought, well, this would be a good time. No, this has a very significant purpose. So the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was for what purpose? Jesus tells us it was for power to be witnesses. And you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. For what purpose? To be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And so the Holy Spirit was for power to be witnesses of Christ. This is realized on the day of Pentecost. It is the harvest of first fruits. Those first fruits are gathered at the conclusion of Peter's sermon where he presents the very, maybe you could arguably, the very first gospel presentation. So that's the setting, day of Pentecost. I do also want to point out this idea that on the day when the day of Pentecost arrived and they were all, that is the 120, were gathered together in one place and note this, and suddenly. I think that's an important element of this setting. That is, the Holy Spirit came upon them suddenly. I want you to understand the Holy Spirit is not captive to the will of man. I think John Piper, and I put it in your notes, I love this. The Holy Spirit, Spirit keeps his own hours. I love that. He does what he does. And he does not consult with you and me. So he didn't say, you know what, you guys, what do you think, Pentecost? What do you think, 120 disciples? You've been here, Jesus has been with you, teaching you about the kingdom of God for 40 days, and, you know, 10 days, that can be sufficient enough for waiting time? No, the Holy Spirit moves as the Holy Spirit determines he's going to move. He is divine. He is God. And so the Holy Spirit moves. The coming of the Spirit, and this is one thing we need to, to establish, that the coming of the Holy Spirit was not a response to the prayers of the disciples. Remember, Jesus said, now go and wait in Jerusalem. And we talked about this last week. What did they do? This was active waiting. What did they do when they waited? They prayed. They prayed for the promise. Jesus had already given the promise. Listen, the promise of the Father is coming. And when the promise of the Father comes, you're going to have power to be my witnesses 
throughout the entire world. Now go wait in Jerusalem. And they waited. And they prayed. But understand this, the Holy Spirit's arrival was not a response to prayer. Rather, the prayer was a response to the promise. I want to get that straight. That the Holy Spirit doesn't come because people prayed. The Holy Spirit was a promise. The peop- they already had the promise. The Holy Spirit's coming. Jesus said, the promise of the Father's coming. You need to wait for it. In response to the promise, the disciples prayed. So we need to understand that the Holy Spirit is sovereign. He, he carries out his own purposes and his own will. And he came suddenly at a time of his choosing. All right, so we've established kind of the setting, the background. Let's look at the event because let's face it, that's where we all want to go. We all want to talk about this event because it's awesome. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so we're going to see these three miraculous manifestations. Um, The first one is sound, the second one is sight, and the third one is strange speech. So let's talk about the sound. The first event is as a violent, rushing wind filling the house. I think that had to be really an amazing, kind of an odd experience because you hear the sound of the wind, but they didn't feel it. They just heard the sound. I mean, when you hear the sound of wind, you're thinking you're going to get blown around, but you don't. I think maybe the best... personal experience I've had of this is, um, some of you know this story, but we were, me and some friends, we were, we were hiking through Perea Canyon. And on our last day, we only had about three miles to get out. And on our last day, we're getting up, we've had breakfast, we're breaking down camp. And I hear the sound of this, this w- loud wind but I feel nothing and I'm looking at the bushes and the trees and they're not blowing. And for a moment, I'm kind of like, there's a little bit of, there's a technical term, discombobulation. I'm expecting wind, but I'm not feeling anything because I'm hearing the sound of it or what I think is the sound of wind. Well, then I realized what it was and I went to the bank of the river and here comes a flash flood. That's the noise I heard. It's this roaring wind. But initially, when I first heard it, I thought, it is the sound of a rush. Oh, we got a lot of wind today, and I'm looking around, and I don't see any evidence for wind. I don't feel the wind. And for a moment, I'm like going, this is weird. So they hear the sound of the wind, they, but, they, but there is no actual, it's not actually blowing them around. You should note, as we set this in the entirety of Scripture, that wind is a common way to portray the Holy Spirit in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, the word for wind and breath and spirit are all the same word, both in Hebrew and in Greek. In Hebrew, the word ruach is translated spirit or wind or breath. Context determines which one we would use. And it's the same in Greek. 
the word pneuma is translated spirit and wind and breath. They're all the same word. How do we know which word to put in there? Context tells us. So when it says the Holy Spirit, we are not going to say, oh, it's the Holy Wind or the Holy Breath or anything like that. It's the Holy Spirit. All right. Um, So we see this as a very common way of portraying the Holy Spirit, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, Maybe one of our best examples is in Ezekiel chapter 37, 9 through 14. We're not going to turn there, but you all know that, that passage. Many of you know that passage. That's the valley of dry bones. Speak to the dry bones. And what happens? The breath of the Lord, the wind of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord comes into the dry bones and gives them life. And, and, and we see in Job that when God breathes his breath, things come alive. It is by the breath of God that a dead person is animated again. It is by the Spirit of God that a person comes to life. And so we see this. And so the Holy Spirit is coming upon this little group, this 120 people. The Holy Spirit is now coming upon them in great power. And the people in the house are now immersed, if you will, baptized in the Holy Spirit. They are drawn together as one body. They now possess the same spiritual life. They are placed in union with Christ. And that's what it means when it talks about us being baptized in the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, how do I mark this? 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. Romans 12. Tells us this. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. There's a lot to unpack there. But in one spirit, all believers are baptized into one spirit. We are joined in union with Christ and also joined in union with one another. So now we are united with Christ. Remember, Christ in Acts is ruling from his throne. Now we are placed in the body of Christ and we are now um, joined with Christ and joined with one another. So at this moment, there is this breath of God, this rushing, the sound of the rushing, and it fills the entire house. Everybody there is now immersed in this spirit. And the second thing we see is that of sight. And tongues of fire rested on each of the individuals. Each one of them. Of course, fire is often the accompanies the presence of God. When God shows up, you will often see fire. After all, God is a consuming fire. But think of where God shows up in fire. Um, burning bush. Classic example. Mount Sinai. Smoke and fire and lightning and all sorts of clouds and earthquakes. And, but fire is, is, is really prominent. Where else do we see the fire of God in, in the Old Testament? Well, certainly we see that God led them by a pillar of fire. Where did that pillar of fire rest when they stopped for the night? I know I'm over the camp. Where specifically over the camp? 
over the tabernacle. This indicated that God is resting, God is present, and God is present in his temple. I think what we have here now is we have this idea that God is present, and he's present in his temple. The individuals are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God is present with us. So, what we have now is God is now <clears throat> with the, each individual believer. In other words, he just didn't over, he just didn't, the, these tongues of fire didn't rest over the house, rested over each of the people. It's like God is present with each of these people. That's very different from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, certain people were indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Priests and kings and prophets had the Holy Spirit. There were some special manifestations. I know 70 people um, in the wilderness um, were empowered by the Holy Spirit and they began to prophesy. But not everybody. In fact, Jesus says to his disciples, you know, about the Holy Spirit, he is with you, but he will be in you. And now God is present with his people. What an awesome thing, folks. God is present. God dwells not only with you, but in you. You are a follower of Christ. You have the Holy Spirit. God, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God takes up residence in his temple. It's pretty amazing. This is the day of Pentecost. We're like going, what an awesome day. We might take that for granted. I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, these guys, they'd never experienced anything like that before. The first thing, first thing we see is this idea, this, this amazing sound. Then we see sight. And now we come to this idea of strange speech. And I would have said um, tongues, um, but it doesn't fit the S um, um, alliteration, so I use strange speech. <clears throat> Notice this. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. One of the things I want you to note is that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think I put this in your notes, but it is a passive... In other words, the disciples are recipients. They are not the ones who go and grab the Holy Spirit and make him theirs. The Holy Spirit fills them. They're the recipients. They are the receivers of an outside action. It is the Holy Spirit who fills them. They do not fill themselves with the Holy Spirit. It is the work of another. And this filling of the Holy Spirit enabled them to speak in other languages um, that they did not know. And it says they are speaking in all these different languages and people are, are wondering, how is it that we hear people speaking in our own languages? And I like this. How is it? Aren't these Galileans? That would be saying, and gosh, I hope I don't offend anybody, but here we go. Thank you. Who said that? Thank you. All right. How is it that we hear these hillbillies 
How is it that we witness these hillbillies doing rocket surgery? That's what they're saying. These guys are a bunch of hillbillies from up north, uneducated rubes who know nothing. How in the world is it that we hear them speaking in our own language? Now, I understand they, might understand, they would understand their own dialect and they would probably understand Aramaic. Some of them might know Hebrew, so, but that's not what we're hearing. We're hearing, and literally, it's our own dialect. How is it that these backwood hillbillies can speak eloquently in our own dialect? So this is an amazing uh, gift. And there's, um, so they're filled with the Spirit, and they're enabled now to do this miraculous deed. I want you to know that the filling of the Spirit happens often in the book of Acts. We're going to see it repeated over and over and over again in the book of Acts. One of the things, and what we're going to see is that when people are filled with the Spirit, they are able to do great and mighty deeds. For instance, they are able to, we'll see, and being filled with the Spirit, they spoke boldly the Word of God. So one of the things that the filling of the Holy Spirit enabled people to do was to speak boldly the word of God. And they were filled with the Spirit and they did works of miracles. They did miraculous things. The filling of the Spirit enabled somebody to do a miraculous thing. And being filled with the Holy Spirit, it says they had joy. So here they are in a difficult situation and they are filled with the Holy Spirit and they have joy. Sometimes having joy, we can say, is a miraculous work, is it? So the filling of the Holy Spirit is enables, so it happens often in the, in, in the book of Acts. We see this constant being filled with the Spirit, they did this. Being filled with the Spirit, they did that. Being filled with the Spirit, they did this. Here's what you don't see. You don't ever see somebody being baptized with the Spirit doing this. And the reason why is because to be a believer is to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. Everybody who is a believer has been baptized in the Holy Spirit. You have been immersed. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 tells us and Paul tells us in in Romans chapter 8 that if you don't have the Spirit of God, you do not belong to Him. Every believer has the Spirit of God. There is no such thing as a non-Spirit-immersed person. But there are, many ba- there are many fillings. In fact, in Ephesians, probably our classic example is in Ephesians chapter 5, verses, verse 18 and following. I'll read the whole thing. So it says this. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I'll stop there. First of all, this, by the way, that's a single sentence in the Greek. And there is a a primary command, and the primary command is be filled with the Spirit. So Paul is commanding the Ephesians, to be filled with the Spirit. In other words, I command you. You are to be commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
There's no command to be baptized in the Spirit. Why? Because they're already baptized in the Spirit. But there is a command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Then you're going to ask, well, what does that mean? Glad you asked. Because then Paul um, writes all of these subordinate clauses. I know that's kind of all grammar stuff, but all of these subordinate clauses that that describe the command. The command is be filled with the Spirit. And the subordinate clauses that describe what it means to be filled with the Spirit, here they are. Somebody asks you, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means a lot of things, but here's a nice, here's one thing that it means. It means address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. Paul is saying that's a subordinate clause. That's I'm telling you, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It means to address one another. Um, it means to sing and make melody in your heart. Be filled with the Spirit. How? Make melody in your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. All of these things have to do with... Now, there, that's not all there is to being filled. In fact, when we go through Acts, we're going to see. Being filled with the Spirit. They did these miraculous things. Being filled with the Spirit. They had joy. Being filled with the Spirit. All of these things took place. The filling of the Spirit basically empowers people to do amazing and miraculous things. Some of those may be... laying on of hands and praying for somebody and seeing them healed. Some of those may be having joy when there is no joy and no reason for joy. Singing and making melody, submitting to one another. Those are all aspects of being filled with the Holy Spirit. When we talk about being filled, I think the idea is that we're being overwhelmed or directed. In fact, we see that same phrase used with other objects. For instance, the people filled with rage. Well, what does that mean? It means that they were consumed and directed and rage was the, the, the single aspect of their life. Or they were filled with jealousy. What does that mean? It means that jealousy was the directing uh, component of their life. Filled with the Spirit means what? That the directing component of your life is the Holy Spirit. So they're filled now with the Holy Spirit. And they begin to speak in other languages. So here they are. The day of Pentecost, they are now gathered together into a single group, a single body, and now they are empowered for what? To bear testimony of the great things of God. Because after all, that's what Acts says. It says, we hear them telling the great things of God. When they were speaking in these other languages, what were they saying? They were saying the great things of God. And people are hearing of the great things of God in their own dialect. So we should note that this language, that this, these other tongues were a known language. And this, this supernatural work pointed others to God. That's what it did. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were able to do something they previously were unable to do, and it directed them to God, and it eventually led to the salvation of 3,000 souls. All of this has missions as its focus. Why are they speaking in other languages? To tell of the great works of God so that Peter now can stand up and proclaim the gospel and bring in a great harvest of souls. 
In other words, what we see is God is fulfilling his promise. I want to set this in its biblical context. God is fulfilling his promise to to fill the earth with his glory and bring even those who are far away into his covenant. You're going to see that throughout scripture. Isaiah 19, 16 through 25, Zechariah 14 through 16, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Psalm 45, 17. God has been saying, I am going to bring the nations to me. Now, God is, uh, is enabling. He's, this is the first fruits. People are speaking in other dialects. And they are going to bring in a great harvest of souls. And all of this is the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is all directed by the Holy Spirit. All right. So we've seen and kind of looked a little more closely at this event. And we saw three aspects of this, this event. There was a sound. There was sight, and there was this strange speech. And it is all directed by the Holy Spirit to, to highlight the great things of God and will ultimately result in the salvation of 3,000 people. This is a harvest. That's why I'm saying the big picture here is harvest. This is all about a harvest. Well, there's a response. And I, I won't spend a lot of time with the response, but I do want you to note the words that, um, that Luke uses to describe the response by people. Bewildered, amazed, astonished, amazed, perplexed. They're bewildered. Well, what is this? How is it that we hear all of these hillbillies speaking in our own dialect? They're amazed. How is this happening? They're astonished. They're perplexed. This is confusing. We don't get this. It's not quite clear to us. Which, by the way, being confused, being perplexed, Peter steps up. We'll see this next week. Peter steps up and explains to them so that they would loose them from their perplexity. They, are no, they no longer need to be perplexed. Peter says, let me give you the story. Here's what's happening. This event raises questions. How is it that we hear these people doing these things? And of course, Peter's going to say, listen, you should be surprised. Joel talked about this. This is biblical. This is what God has been doing. God has been bringing in a heart, uh, has brought about a Messiah, and he's going to bring people from every tribe and tongue and nation into his fold. Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must go to them as well. This is what he's doing. He's going to other sheep. He's going to go to the Gentiles. The event also raises some... Basically, the event raises mixed responses. Some people say, what is this? And others mock them. I guess we shouldn't be surprised that when God works powerfully through us, I guess God working powerfully is kind of a redundant statement, isn't it? When God works through us, through his people, I guess it's always powerfully. Not everybody is going to have a positive response. Not everybody is going to say, oh, right on, man, you guys are, you guys are on fire. And a lot of people mock. And if, you, if God empowers you and enables you to share the gospel with somebody, not everybody receives it gladly. Some people are perplexed and bewildered and say, I don't know what that means. And others say, yeah, you're an idiot. 
Nope. Right here on the day of Pentecost, probably one of the most miraculous events that is recorded in the Bible, and people said, yeah, those guys are just a bunch of alcoholics. They're drunk. But Peter says, man, it's only nine in the morning. That's my point. You're alcoholics. It's nine in the morning, and you're already drunk. Or perhaps you're still drunk from partying all last night. He's like, oh no, this is the work of God. So the work of God can bring mixed responses, including mocking. But that does not hinder the work of God. This is still needs to go forth. God is empowering us for missions. So let me just conclude with a few things here. So, um, Pentecost really is a continuation of all that Jesus began to do and teach. He is now doing it through his church. He establishes a church, and now he begins to work through the individuals in that church. Um, and, I, and I really want you to get this idea that Pentecost is a signal of a great harvest, the signal um, of a great harvest by a great missionary God. God is reaching out to the nations, and he begins it here on this day in Jerusalem. Eventually, the book of Acts is going to spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. It's an amazing thing that these 120 people are going to proclaim a gospel by the time we get to the book of the end of the book of Acts. Um, Christianity is well established in the Roman Empire. Um, why? Not because you have great men, but you have a powerful God who's working all of these things. Let me close with this, uh, this, uh, slide, this next slide. It's a, a quote from John Stott. I think there's one more slide up there. Hopefully there should be one more. There it is. This is, an, this is awesome. Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness with, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As a body, without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. Father, we come before you this day with great thanksgiving.